I'm very excited in particular for the Indigenous Health Panel. Um, I think I stole Tolu's answer. <laughs> of the people in the world are disabled, this is a, a huge issue. Many gypsies and travellers that we've worked with over the years have come to us and told us that the GP surgery won't register them and the blatant answer has been, well, we, we're not the gypsy doctor. I've been to a doctor who has, you know, on discovering that I had five children, told me to stop polluting the earth. We have cases of Aboriginal mothers who are being turned away from the hospital system and dying. Welcome back to the Rhodes Healthcare Forum. In this third episode of a four-part series, we'll be talking about equal and inclusive healthcare in the context of universal health coverage. In the previous episode of this series, we heard from Dr Loganathan about the ways in which even countries with universal health coverage can still exclude people on the margins, meaning these health systems aren't really catering to everyone as they are said to. In case you didn't catch the previous episode, this is what Dr Loganathan said. Yes, I did a qualitative study on um, migrants in Malaysia and what I found was um, in Malaysia um, there are a lot of barriers. First of all, the main barrier is financial barriers. Um, um, migrant workers are uh, subjected, actually all foreign nationals in public healthcare system, the, the, the prices for foreigners are actually much higher than locals. And when you think about migrant workers, they are minimum wage earners. Uh, I, I would see this as uh, exclusion in our UHC. So UHC and uh, the idea of universal health coverage would cover everybody in the country. And um, we are actually excluding a segment of society. Today you're going to be listening in on my conversations about equal and inclusive healthcare coverage with Professor Hannah Cooper, Natalie Bennett, Richard Bennett and Sarah Sweeney, and finally, Dr Chelsea Bond. We're going to be thinking about caring for underrepresented disabled populations in low and middle income countries, improving health outcomes for gypsy and traveller communities in the UK, and indigenous health in Australia. The thread running throughout today's episode is really the idea that in striving for universal health coverage, we have to make sure no one is left behind. So I'm Hannah Cooper and I'm the director of the Disability Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Professor Cooper is here at the forum speaking about caring for underrepresented disabled populations in low and middle income countries. I caught up with her in one of the breaks to understand how we can make sure underrepresented disabled populations aren't left behind in the drive to achieve universal health coverage. Okay, so I thought we could start by thinking about the particular difficulties that disabled populations face in low and middle income countries when it comes to healthcare. Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that disability is not the same as poor health but that people with disabilities are on average more likely to experience poor health. So, for instance, they, um, the condition that caused their disability, so diabetes can cause blindness, can also have lots of other health impacts. 
But at the same time, people with disabilities are excluded in other kinds of ways. So they're more likely to be poor, they're more likely to be excluded from education and employment. And those things will also make it more likely that they're experiencing poor health, but also make it more difficult to access health. So when you're thinking in terms of accessing health, there are a couple of kind of barriers that everybody faces in terms of accessing health, like availability. But people with disabilities will face additional barriers. So because they're on average poorer, um, they may have financial barriers to seeking care. There's obviously physical inaccessibility if somebody who's a wheelchair user can't get into the building or can't use the toilet um, at the healthcare facility or can't get onto the examination table. And then there are lots of issues about communication difficulties whether people who are hearing impaired or have intellectual disabilities can communicate, um, have that interaction go well with a healthcare professional. And then finally, there's issues and difficulties that people may face because of negative attitudes. So, for instance, people may think that disabled people are asexual and therefore not offer sexual health services in the same ways as to other people. Mm, that's really interesting. I was also wondering whether being in a specific age group or being a specific uh, gender sort of compounds the problems that disabled people might face? Well, people who are older are more likely to be disabled. Um, at the same time, they may see that their health conditions are just a normal part of ageing. So, yeah, I can't see that well, but it's because I'm old, and therefore I'm not going to necessarily seek health care because I don't know what's available or I'm you know, really old anyway. So I think there's one um, possibility there, what's called intersectionality, the other issues with gender, so people who are from poor countries may be discriminated, may be disadvantaged, people who are female may be disadvantaged, and people who are disabled may be disadvantaged. So if you have all three, you may face a kind of triple jeopardy, um, which make you very excluded from things like access to healthcare. Hmm. Uh, and how do you assess the prevalence of uh, disability and impairments? That is a very good question and there's a very, very long answer. So I can talk about that for hours and hours and yeah. hours, but I won't. You can ask people outright, are you disabled? That's not a very good question because it's quite stigmatising and lots of people don't see themselves as being disabled. You can measure whether somebody has an impairment, like can they not see well or hear well, but that doesn't capture their full experience of exclusion and disability. And so mostly the favoured way is to ask people about functional difficulties that people have in different kinds of areas like seeing, understanding and communication and that could capture both the physical impairment that people have but also the environment in which they're living. Mm -hmm. and are there, is there any space for technology to, to help with sort of gauging the prevalence of... I love technology yeah. <laughs> um, and there's lots of fantastic technological innovations particularly for measuring impairment. So with visual acuity you can now measure visual acuity on a mobile phone app and similarly with hearing impairment so that you can get much more accurate um, measures of how common hearing impairment and visual impairments are in a population. With other kinds of impairment, like mental health conditions or physical impairments, they're much more difficult to measure using technology at the moment, but I think the future will be heavily around technology. You also spoke about uh, discrimination that disabled people face, especially when it comes to, to healthcare. How can we go about changing attitudes well, I think there's lots of perceptions that people believe that there's discrimination and negative attitudes. I think we need to probe whether or not that's always the case or that there's a fear of it. Um, but let's say it is there. I think in terms of changing attitudes of clinicians, 
it, disability needs to be integrated within medical curriculum. So from the training point of view, once they're going into medical school, nursing school, whatever, there needs to be lots of information about disability, which will affect a very large proportion of the people that they're seeing, and what the needs of people with disabilities may be and how to interact with them. And I think in terms of um, general population-wide attitudes, I think maybe it comes down to cultural things, like what do we see on the radio, what do we see um, on the television, are there disabled people who are just portrayed as normal people in the society who are also having sex or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important representation. Yeah, so it's about presence as well. In terms of improving health outcomes then for, for disabled populations, um, and specifically in low middle income countries, how, how do we go about doing this? I think it's tricky. So let's say 15% of the population is disabled on average. Um, and you know that people with disabilities are more likely to experience health conditions but more difficulties accessing health services. So then do you make the argument that you should specifically focus on people with disabilities and trying to overcome those barriers so that you improve better to access to healthcare? On the other hand, they're 15% of the population. What about the other 85% when they're countries that are very poor? So my argument really is, is that if you make a health system that caters to the needs of people with disabilities, so that the flexibility um, uh, and the skills to deal with people with different methods of communication and different kinds of mobility, then it actually makes it a better health system for everybody. And so I think we need to think about it a little bit in that way and start thinking about what the barriers are that people with disabilities face and try and chip away at them, but thinking that that will make a better health system for all. And Dr Agnes this morning talked about the idea of task shifting as well and training members of, of the community up um, and making it more responsibility at a community level. Do you think that would help in this situation? I think that's really important and it's, it can be a very good strategy and it's being used for lots of different impairment types, so identifying people with visual impairment or hearing impairment um, and working together with people with disabilities in the community. I think we have to be careful that task shifting doesn't lower the quality. So when people started task shifting about eye care to community health workers, in some settings it didn't work. They weren't doing it well enough. They were missing people or misdiagnosing. And then it's not appropriate to task shift. So yes, task shift, but make sure that we're maintaining good quality. You're also going to talk about the idea of rehabilitation. Yeah. Mm. Um, so how... What are the sort of needs of people who are being rehabilitated and how can those needs be, be met? So a lot of the focus of healthcare systems is to prevent diseases or to treat them so that they're cured. But actually lots of conditions are not entirely cured and people are left with impairments that cannot be swept away by health systems anymore, by, by more healthcare. So then the question is, what do you do for people like that? So there is rehabilitation, so it's things like uh, relearning skills through physiotherapy, speech and language, low vision, and there's also assistive technologies um, which can help enormously and the development of digital technologies helping to close a big gap there. Now at the moment I think that rehabilitation and assistive technologies are seen a little bit as a luxury or an afterthought for when countries can afford it. And with the move to universal health coverage, they should be seen more as essential, fundamental building blocks of a health system in general. And then we need to um, start making sure that those can be provided as well. Mm. And is there a problem where, on the one hand, you need to provide these services, but on the other hand, you also need to make people aware that these services exist? Is it a question of people coming forward? 
Um, or is it also a case of, of advertising the fact that the these services are there? I think it's both. I mean, obviously, if there's nothing there and people don't know about it, nobody's going to come forward. But then once they're available to start making them popular and used, they have to work well, they have to be high quality and they have to fill a need. Um, so there's kind of multiple things going on. They have to be available locally and appropriate. I just thought we could talk a little bit more broadly maybe about the relationship between poverty and disability, if there is one. Um, so if you could talk about that and then also maybe we can talk about how we could break that cycle if, if that is the case. Well, we recently did a systematic review and we identified more than 100 papers from low-income countries looking at the relationship between disability and poverty. And there was very, very strong evidence from more, almost all of the studies that there is this link. So people who are disabled are on average more likely to be poor. And it can go in lots of different directions. So people who are disabled are um, less likely to be included in schools and in employment and so therefore may earn less in the future. It may be that people, and so we're seeing this a lot in Brazil, where they're um, severely disabled children from Zika, that the mother is no longer able to work, and therefore the family becomes poorer. But you also see it the other way around. And, and being disabled can be expensive, you know, that their costs of assistive technologies and so on. But we also see it the other way around, that people who are poorer are more likely to become disabled because they may live in more precarious situations, they may have poorer access to healthcare, and so on. So that link is there, it exists. And then how do we break that link? Well, there's quite um, a lot of work going on about social protection, so that if you give people disabilities benefits, some kind of cash, that that can be transformative and allow them to, to leapfrog so that they're able to use their resources to, um, to start generating money and coming out of poverty. Um, at the moment, the social protection programs don't work well because they basically just don't give people enough money. But again, trying to identify that pathway between disability and poverty and then start chipping away at, okay, how can we make sure that children with disabilities are included in schools? How can we produce innovative ways for people with disabilities to be included in employment? We'll then start to reduce the poverty. And how important is academia for all of this? What is the relationship between academia and implementing this sort of change? So I'm an academic and I work a lot with NGOs and this is a question that keeps me awake at night. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to just do work that gets published in scientific journals and sits in shelves. And the question is how do you get what you find to work? Um, so what we can do, what we do, for instance, the review about disability and poverty can be used for advocacy or in other settings we've developed and tested interventions, say to... Um, improve menstrual hygiene management for women with intellectual disabilities in Nepal. And making that leap from the academia into practice is really, really hard. And I can't say that I've nailed it. But it comes down to working on the right questions. It comes down to having close working relationships with the NGOs and with international agencies like the WHO. And it comes down a little bit to kind of luck. So, for instance, a lot of the work that we did about Zika has been much more in the public attention because people are interested in Zika than other work that we've done, which I think is as academically rigorous. And that's something that's quite hard to replicate or control. At the end of our conversation, Professor Cooper situates everything we've been talking about in the context of universal health coverage to really make it clear why it's so important to consider disabled populations in plans for universal health coverage. A lot of the focus this morning has been on universal health coverage. And in universal health coverage, you think of two, three things. You think about 
reaching the whole population with all the services they need and without them going into massive debt. And so I think people with disabilities are very important to consider here because we know that they're not being reached to the same extent as people without disabilities in terms of access. We know that they're not getting all the services they need because of these gaps in assistive technologies and rehabilitation. And we know that they're spending a lot more money on healthcare services when they have less money to start off with. Um, and if they are taking, 50% oh, of the people in the world are disabled, this is a, a huge issue. So I think it would be good to see discussions on disability more centrally within universal health coverage or as part of that discussion. I loved what Professor Cooper said about how ensuring disabled populations are catered for within a healthcare system would make it a better system for everyone. And it was really striking to hear that she's kept up at night thinking about how best to get academic discoveries onto the ground and make a difference. We actually stayed a little longer after I'd switched the recorder off talking about the possibilities and limitations of academia, both within healthcare and outside of it. And my conversation with Professor Cooper very much reinforced what I was feeling on the first day of the forum, which is a feeling I shared with you all in the first episode of this series. A feeling that there was a deep probing concern here at the forum for understanding academia's role in the drive towards universal health coverage and also for understanding that this role is constantly evolving. I'm Natalie Bennett from Gypsy Life. I'm Richard Bennett from Gypsy Life. And I'm Sarah Sweeney from Friends, Families and Travellers. Natalie, Richard and Sarah are here talking about improving health outcomes for Gypsy and Traveller communities in the UK. I asked Natalie, Richard and Sarah to talk a bit about the differences between gypsies and travellers and also to talk about the diversity within these groups, which the umbrella terms don't really catch. Well, yeah, often is it? Often people coin the phrase GRT. The G generally stands for gypsies, which are origins are in northern India. Um, they've been in this country for over a thousand years now. Then you've got Rome, Roma. Now they're from Romania, although at their origins from over a thousand years ago also come from northern India. Romania has the biggest proportion of, mm. of Roma communities in Europe. Mm. Um, but they, they're also kind of, they're all, they're all over yeah. Europe and Europe as well. Mm. There's, there's certainly more people in the UK as well. And then you've got your travellers, which are Irish travellers who have come from, over from Ireland. And then you've also got new travellers as well, yeah. um, who aren't an ethnic group, but certainly there's a lot of people been on the road for generation upon generation. Um, and yeah, certainly lots of barges, mm -hmm. lifting canals and things. So there's a real diversity and no two groups are the same at all. You've, you've, got, um, you've also got uh, a completely missed out group of people who live in van conversions or motorhomes who have actually given up their residence, their dwelling. So they've sold their house, they've, they've probably retired mm -hmm. uh, or they, they chose to opt out of society. Uh, they're not necessarily new travellers, they're not gypsies or travellers, they're not Roma, mm. uh, they're not show people. And there's approximately about 100,000 in the country that would just wild camp. Um, and the only groups that are recognised under the Race Relations Act or, or the European Convention on Human Rights is gypsies, you know, Romani gypsies, Roma or Irish travellers. We're all we're grouped together because of the life choices we've made rather than our ethnic origins. Mm -hmm. So and travellers are both are generally nomadic, aren't they? Or there's a culture yeah. of nomadism even if people aren't always travelling now. Uh, but there is that big myth, 
you aren't a traveller or a gypsy unless you move around. Importantly, Natalie points out that 85% of the gypsy and traveller communities are in stationary accommodation. Richard makes the following analogy. It's like saying, if you are of Pakistani origin and you're born in Bradford, you are no longer a Pakistani. So it is, you know, it's quite insulting when obviously people assume that you have to travel to be a traveller. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so we're here talking about healthcare specifically. Um, and so I'd really like to know sort of how is healthcare or the healthcare needs of uh, gypsy and traveller communities assessed? Like, are there systems in place? What, what they should do is a full and accurate joint strategic needs assessment, which should include all ethnic groups, as well as hard-to-reach communities, as well as, as well as homeless people, as well as sex workers, etc. And you'll usually find that the vast majority have never even done work to find the local gypsy or traveller community. And when you're looking at we are 2% of the population, we are probably one of the largest ethnic groups in this country. So why is that work not being done? Why, why do people not get to the gypsy and traveller communities? Why are the healthcare needs not being met? The Health and Wellbeing Board has the CCGs and public health bodies as part of it. CCGs are clinical commissioning groups. They are part of the NHS and are responsible for planning and delivering care in the local area where they work. The Health and Wellbeing Board has the CCGs and public health bodies as part of it and I think when they're looking at a, a whole population and things then maybe one of, the, one of the indications of whether a group will be in an area is if there are data or statistics collected about ethnicity or about age or about those sort of things you say oh, we've got a, an aging population in this area of the country because gypsies and travellers aren't recorded their ethnicity then that's not coming up through data sets um, and then Often, because a lot of gypsies and travellers, there's lack of trust between services and community members. They go in both directions often. Um, then if people aren't looking into services, then maybe local services who would help to identify this is a community that needs this support then. Perhaps then they, they also aren't engaging with gypsy and traveller communities. Um, and then also just being a, a relatively small population proportionately to the rest of the UK and being spread out across the country means that you're going to often be a minority group in, a, in every area that you go to and things. So it's always hard, I think, if you're a smaller group to get your voice heard uh, when there's lots of bigger voices um, out there. I feel like it's, it's important off the back of what you said to talk a bit about discrimination and how that affects healthcare needs being met. Um, I mean, what sorts of discrimination do communities have to deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis when they're interacting with healthcare professionals, for instance? Many gypsies and travellers that we work with over the years have come to us and told us that the GP surgery won't register them. And the blatant answer has been, well, we, we're not the gypsy doctor. So they've been told to go and find another doctor. Now, there is no gypsy doctor. Doctor surgeries, the NHS was set up free at point of service for everybody, for all walks of life. And unfortunately, gypsies and travellers are treated differently on that aspect. So a lot of people have refused healthcare at a start. Some women are not even are not even able to access her antenatal care in our community. So some people end up dying during childbirth, or having a baby prematurely, and you know, and in all sorts of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so healthcare, there is a lot of discrimination within healthcare, but not necessarily via the GPs, because a lot of, a lot of our community will tell you when they actually do get to see the doctor, the doctor doesn't care whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you've got two heads. He just cares about <laughs> catering for your health. That's all. The gatekeepers are the people on reception. Now, the people on reception that are not medically minded anyway, 
they will have their own they have their own prejudices but some quite often people don't even know where those prejudices have come from it becomes a habit we don't like gypsies and travelers we don't like that community and if you actually say well why don't you like that community they can't actually answer you because nine times out of ten they've never met a member of the community but it's what's been passed down through their generations through their families Mm -hmm. so it's almost like a habit of disliking a certain community Mm. i think there's like the two forms isn't there's that there's that direct discrimination where um, we, there was someone quite a few years ago now but he tried to register as a doctor and they said their surname and it was a well-known Irish traveller surname and they said we're not taking anyone else with that surname on the books. That was quite wide and we don't get that as often through our helpline anyway. Mm. But there's then that indirect one where... Um, so the, the policy for NHS states that GP practices should register everyone regardless of whether they've got an ID or a fixed address um, or whether they're immigration status and all these things. Primary care should be open to everyone because we all need it, don't we? Um, but what happens often, I think, is receptionists... Aren't, haven't been informed of the responsibilities to register people and sometimes patients, even when they're aware of their rights, find it very hard to advocate for that because no they're not maybe taken seriously in things as well. There's quite a high number of GP practices who won't register them because they've not got a fixed address, they won't register them because they've not got ID, they say, you're not from our area, we don't have responsibility for you. In that pressure of where there's not enough money for everyone going round, then gypsies and travellers are a very easy group to kind of pick on and, and push out from, from healthcare. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's all the other things, I think, as well, that... Maybe they're not they're not direct or indirect discrimination, but it's it's the way that you feel when you access healthcare, and if you don't feel wanted, and if people aren't being welcoming, and if they're not speaking in in language that you use day to day, which I think is a case for a lot of people. Like I know when I go to the GP, often uh, I would kind of come by thinking, what what was that about, and what do I have to do now, sort of thing. But then that might be um, worsened by um, issues around access and education and things, which would make that an even bigger barrier yeah. um, for people. So yeah, I wondered if um, we could talk a bit more about uh, well, talk a bit about Gypsy Life. We haven't actually talked about Gypsy specifically um, um, and that you've, you founded um, and that you run healthcare training uh, and events um, yeah. I believe and I'd love you to talk talk to me about what kind of events that you, you run and how effective they are. Well we run a range of community based events and also professional uh, based events. The community based events is where we uh, we own our own uh, gypsy and traveller site um, so it's quite easy for us to introduce professional members within the NHS onto our site so that they actually realise that they're going to leave with both kidneys, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people are in fear of going onto a gypsy traveller site thinking they have to keep the car running, wear running shoes, etc. They, these, these, believe it or not, it may sound silly to you, but these are actually guidelines with some of the CCGs that if you go onto a gypsy or traveller site, remember to tell a colleague, phone that colleague every 15 minutes so you're all right, have the local police number ready, and also keep your engine running in case you need to make a swift escape. Now, if you're told that as a health professional, you ain't going to go there quickly, are you? you it's going to be the last place you want to go. So what we do is we introduce, we do a soft opening. So in other words, we do where people come, they spend some time. So once they understand that we are just the same as everybody else, we just have different healthcare needs and not for some, we, we need extra healthcare needs because we've not been getting them for all our lives. So once they realise that, then that breaks down quite a lot of barriers. But also community members that are on site and that we invite to the site, they actually also understand that healthcare professionals aren't strange people or do actually want them to engage. They're not somebody that are to be feared. Um, because our word in our own language for a doctor is the poison giver. 
So what we do is we basically softly break down barriers between the two communities because there is just as much prejudice from our community to engaging with health professionals than there is from health professionals engaging with our community. So some way, somewhere, we've got to break that deadlock. Uh, Sarah, do you mind just talking a little bit about um, what the work that friends, families and, and travellers do? Yeah, of course. Um, specifically, I'm interested in the fact that um, you work sort of at a higher policy level as well, and I'm interested in how that's important for ensuring that the, the future of healthcare systems are you know, equal and inclusive. I should just add that Natalie and Richard also do a lot at policy level, just like friends, families and travellers. Natalie and Richard work with the criminal justice system, the current government and the NHS. So we do, we do a mixture, so we've got a really weird uh, combination in our office where we're half of us are office based and we're doing stuff that is trying to influence politics, uh, trying to influence policy making and that's across, I think our two key areas that we work in are health and accommodation and I think accommodation maybe is one of the things that yeah. has the biggest impact um, on the health of, of gypsies and travellers. Um, uh, so we, we try to influence um, MPs and support MPs to advocate for gypsy and travel rights across all the social determinants of health. Um, and then in our health work we work on a thing called the VCSC Health and Wellbeing Alliance. So it's a partnership of 21 charities um, who all have um, a, a focus um, on, on one uh, community. And then we, we do we facilitate like focus groups, for example, on really um, niche maybe aspects of health policy, um, where community members get a chance to have their voice heard and how that should be shaped and how it could be more inclusive. Um, we do um, research around that as well, around people's experiences of care um, and things that maybe are barriers for them um, in accessing care. In terms of our, our more like on the ground, uh, more kind of tangible nitty gritty work and things, then we've got a team of outreach workers um, who are all from gypsy and traveller communities um, who do the same sort of thing that Natalie uh, and Richard uh, were talking about, building up trust, um, yeah. signposting to services. Um, we do lots of youth work, uh, we've got a homework club for kids to support yeah. them um, in, in their education. Um, we've got a, a national helpline um, which uh, operates across the UK, but mainly most of our phone calls come from England. Um, and that's with supporting people um, either if discrimination happens, um, with trying to access gypsy and traveller planners, so specifically to get a gypsy and traveller pitch. Um, maybe it's because of in your face healthcare, um, maybe they need some support uh, with getting vet bills paid for the dog, and the RSPA doesn't suffer like that for people who have um, no fixed abode and things. So it's, it's a real mixed match, just trying to get that um, the experiences of people on the ground um, into policy making. Um, and it's, it's, it's challenging, but it feels really worthwhile. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it, it's a hill to climb. Everything's a hill to climb. But the thing is, unless you, you need to walk up that hill in order to find the beautiful view that you've reached at the top. Um, we're still looking for the view now. Talking to Richard, Natalie and Sarah, I couldn't help but focus again on the idea of trust. It seems that building relationships of trust between gypsy and traveller communities and healthcare professionals is so important if, like Richard says, we're going to reach a point where we can see that beautiful view of equal and inclusive health coverage. My name is Associate Professor Chelsea Bond and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Queensland. I'm a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman born and raised on Yagara country. The final speaker I'm talking to today is Dr Chelsea Bond, who is here speaking about Indigenous health in Australia. I wondered if you might start by speaking about the diversity of Indigenous groups in Australia. 
Yeah, so in Australia we have um, two broad Indigenous groups, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also contained within that are many, many different nations. Um, so um, we think about Australia, it was a multicultural country before um, the British came. Um, so I belong to the Mananjali people um, of the Yugambeh language group. Um, and across Australia, there are many different um, uh, Aboriginal groups and language groups of which people identify with still today. And I wonder if you could, sort of thinking about healthcare, if you could just briefly explain how the healthcare system functions in Australia and then we can think about uh, the experience of these uh, different Indigenous groups when it comes to healthcare. Well, there's a really interesting irony, I think, about the healthcare system in Australia. Um, on, in many respects, it's seen as a world leader on a whole range of things in terms of the provision of healthcare, um, uh, smoking cessation, um, a whole range of things, public healthcare, access to public health. But for Indigenous peoples, we don't enjoy the same privileges of that world-class health system. Um, and as an Aboriginal woman, I'm really curious as to how that happens. What are the circumstances by which we are denied access to this world-class health system that this country boasts about? Um, particularly given it's in our lands. Well, exactly. Um, yeah. So um, I came to health as, as a Mananjali woman first and foremost. And I came to health not because I wanted to be a health professional. I came to health because I was um, motivated by the fact that our people die before they get old. Um, I was motivated by the fact that I knew our circumstances were very, very different to other Australians. And health was just a vehicle by which I could explore that, which I thought I could do something about. And what interested me is I, I came to realise that health wasn't the, the benevolent endeavour that it claims itself to be. And so the history of healthcare in, this, in the country that I live in, care is a relatively new experience for Indigenous people from the health system. So our first national Aboriginal health strategy was in 1989. I was 10 years old when the country first thought that it might do something about Indigenous health. So I think... Um, we forget our history and that how health operates as an institution of the society in which we live in and how it reflects the society's values. It's not this benevolent, neutral endeavour. Um, so my work as an Indigenous um, health researcher is to reveal how the health system is not working for us in order for it to work better for us. Yeah, and you, you've written before, I think, about the importance of healthcare communication or talk uh, in helping to improve outcomes for Indigenous communities when it comes to, to healthcare. Um, I'm a linguist, so I found this particularly interesting. Right, yeah. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Um, well, it's, it's really interesting. I think, you know, there are some really extreme structural conditions that have produced um, the health inequalities that we experience. That's not to say there aren't some really easy ways to change this and how it works. Um, so I don't want to sort of just, you know, emphasise individual agency as the way to remedy Indigenous health inequality, but it does matter. Um, and relationships, relationships of trust matter in the provision of healthcare. Um, we know in, our, um, in Australia we have Indigenous peoples have the highest rate of discharge against medical advice from the hospital system. And even accounting for all the other factors which make um, patients more likely to discharge against medical advice, indigeneity alone is, the, is still more significant as a determinant of, of discharge against medical advice. Now there's something going on in the relationship there. 
that needs addressing. And it's not because Indigenous people don't, we don't care about our health. It's not because we don't have strong health literacy that we're disinterested. Um, there's something going on in the health system. And as an Aboriginal woman who's encountered the health system as a client as well as a care provider, I know about the violence of that system. Mm. I've been to a doctor who has, you know, on discovering that I had five children, told me to stop polluting the earth. Um, so there's a daily kind of violence that's enacted upon Indigenous people who are seeking care. We have cases of Aboriginal mothers who are being turned away from the hospital system and dying. Um, and this is in my time, women of my age, who are dying from preventable illnesses because they're not deemed deserving of care. Sounds like there really needs to be a, an attitude change here. Also, I think um, the idea of actually seeing these acts as violent acts and not just oh, something like insensitive acts, yes. for instance. Um, do you feel like that's a, an attitude change that really needs to, to happen within the, the healthcare system? Yeah, and I, so as a health professional, um, my early work was as an Aboriginal health worker. And the Aboriginal health worker is um, a bit of, you know, jack of all trades. We are like the cultural broker between the community and the health system. And we operate in clinical contexts and community contexts in all kinds of ways. And much of my work as a young health worker was um, teaching about our culture, teaching about how to communicate more effectively with Indigenous people, appealing to health professionals to treat us with dignity. Now, some years on, I'm really interested in the issue of health justice and how we prosecute these cases and compel the state to change what they're doing because of the violence that's being inflicted upon Indigenous people. Um, we have um, a number of cases in Australia that have gone on in more recent years, um, a few coronal inquests that are happening right now, um, where we're appealing to... Um, we're seeking to get included in the scope of inquiry the extent to which racism uh, played out in the cause of death. And it's clear to us that it's operating. Um, it's about proving that. And it's about, ma about making the state accountable because one thing we know is you can keep appealing to your oppressor to be nicer to you, but that's not working for us. Um, and so I'm interested in the new strategies we devise to ensure that um, our mob get the care that this healthcare system claims to provide. And uh, I think it's interesting that you, you brought up the issue of trust, because uh, actually when I was talking to uh, Sarah Sweeney and Natalie and Richard Bennett, um, they were saying that there's an issue on, of trust on, on both sides in terms of healthcare professionals sort of trusting that they will be safe in uh, gypsy and traveller communities and then also gypsy and traveller communities trusting healthcare professionals. Obviously, if when you're discriminated against, why would you trust uh, someone? Do you think that's a, a similar case with uh, the communities that you yeah. work in? So I did some really interesting work around Indigenous smoking cessation. So I live in a community, uh, um, a very strong, proud Indigenous community um, in the outer western suburbs of Brisbane. Um, most blackfellas actually live in urban contexts in Australia, which people don't realise. The word blackfella, as Dr Bond explains afterwards to me, means someone who is for the most part Aboriginal, so Aboriginal English. Being a blackfella is authenticated by bloodlines, rather than it being anything to do with the colour of skin. Um, most blackfellas actually live in urban contexts in Australia, which people don't realise, but um, really high smoking population. Um, the adult smoking rate in our clinic community was somewhere like 67%, um, which is massive, higher than the national Indigenous rates. Um, what I wanted to do with, around that as a former smoker was to not do more research that demonised Indigenous smokers, but went to Indigenous people who had quit within that community to find out what worked for them. How did they manage to quit in a community where almost seven out of ten adults smoked around them? Because there's something pretty amazing if you can quit in that environment, given what we know about social networks and smoking and all that stuff. Um, so I started with the, with the starting point that um, Indigenous people knew something about their experience. 
and I asked them about that. How did they quit? What worked? What was really interesting, there was um, there were a whole range of things, positive, significant life event, a new identity that was no longer congruent with a smoking identity, all this kind of stuff. What was interesting, there was this cohort within those that I yarned with who talked about um, having a supportive relationship from a health professional. And most typically it was the quitline counselling service, an anonymous person on a phone who may not have done cultural awareness training, um, but that relationship was so vital in these smoking cessation narratives. And what it was was that those people didn't rouse them for smoking, didn't uh, rouse on them for relapsing, in fact, encouraged and supported and told them that they could give up, that they could do it, that they just had to try again. And there was something really amazing that that kind of relationship could produce that kind of outcome. When I talked to those same, the same group of smokers and some of them are older people, some of them talked about smoking longer because the state was telling them to quit. Um, so using the body as a site of resistance. What we did in that clinic uh, community at the time was we used the findings to talk to the health professionals in the service to show them what works around smoking cessation is not, you know, um, scolding people for making poor choices, but actually encouraging people. And we had doctors actually change how they spoke to smokers and it changed the outcome. Like, you know, it's, it's that easy. Yeah. It's just that easy. Yeah. Um, treat people like human beings yeah. and, and it, we should be encouraging and empowering people to make a better choice. Yeah. not demonising them for not making a, a good choice. And what we know about smoking and the highest smoking populations, they're black, they're poor, they're incarcerated, they're mentally ill. And if you look at all those groups, what they have in common is power or the absence of it. Mm -hmm. So why would we make those people feel more powerless if we wanted to improve their health? It makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Kind of makes sense, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we learnt from Indigenous people about that, not yeah. from um, the person with the Master's of Public Health degree. Yeah. And you mentioned a potential lack of cultural awareness. I think you, you did your PhD on the disjuncture between Indigenous and public health narratives of identity. Uh, does that sort of lack of cultural awareness uh, interact with, with the idea of the different narratives of, of identity that you were looking at? Well, for me as a student of the health sciences, what shocked me was that when I came to study health and the text that I encountered about us, it, it just didn't relate. So I grew up feeling a sense of pride in my identity, that we were strong, that we were actually better than because we had survived so much. So the narratives in my house about my identity, about my racialised identity, were so very different to what I encountered then as a student in the health sciences, where we were pathologised, demonised, we were a, a risk group. Um, and like and indigeneity and a lot of health promotion resources is like a box under risk factors alongside smoking and obesity. Indigeneity is, is a risk. And so for me, I was really fascinated and horrified at the, the, the public health account of us and how far removed it was from us, the public, in how we knew ourselves. I mean, how, how does that happen? Are, there, are Indigenous people well represented amongst healthcare professionals? So in, in Australia, we're 3% of the population. Um, and even in Indigenous spaces, uh, I mean... If we think about Australia more broadly, so we're not recognised within the Constitution, there's been no treaty with Aboriginal nations at any point in our history um, uh, as a collective group. So at that, at that level, we're, we're, we're not recognised. The need for Indigenous control over own affairs is still something we're fighting for. 
Um, so the need for Indigenous people to run our services, to be in charge of our affairs. I mean, we have a Minister for Indigenous Affairs who is a white man. Uh, we just don't have control over much of um, our affairs. And that is evident also in the provision of healthcare services. That's evident in health research, our national health research body. It's upwards of 85% of designated Indigenous health research funding is led by non-Indigenous peoples. So we're still fighting to take control of our own affairs because we know what's best for our communities and we're really motivated to make a difference. We just need people to get out of the way and let us do it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think if we're thinking about improving health outcomes for Indigenous populations, how, how do you go about measuring improvement in that context? I think it's a really um, challenging um, task in, the, in light of the enormous disparities that we, we still see. Seeing success and celebrating success remains a challenge. Um, I'm really interested in how we take a strength-based approach to health improvement. And that includes even how we assess it. There's sometimes we have interventions that have unanticipated outcomes, but good outcomes. Um, so I'm interested in the sort of the kind of most significant change, how we look at change and, and think about what change um, on whose terms. So in Australia, we find there's a lot of health interventions that involve regulating and surveilling black bodies, making them compliant. We have a very strong individual health behaviourist approach and success is by how compliant can we make the natives. That to me is not a measure of success. It's a measure of um, ongoing colonial control. Um, for me, success is um, the redistribution of power. Um, so I think it's, we have to think about what success means on whose terms, because for Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples working within health, they're very different indicators. A lot of what Dr Bond told me I found shocking. Shocking that Australia's supposedly world-class healthcare system could be enacting what we agreed were violent acts of exclusion on Indigenous peoples. Dr Bond suggested better cultural awareness and communication could go a long way, though, in starting to change the way healthcare interactions currently play out. To start to build trust between healthcare professionals and Indigenous peoples. In my talks with Natalie Bennett, Richard Bennett, Sarah Sweeney and Dr Bond, they all brought up the issue of trust. I can't stress enough how trust seems to pop up in so many of my conversations this weekend. We heard in the first episode of this series from Sir Jeremy Farrer about how there is faltering public trust in healthcare experts. In the second episode of this series, we heard Dr Tom Insel talk about trust in the context of using the smartphone as a tool to improve mental health outcomes. And now we're hearing about how trust between communities and healthcare professionals in both directions is fundamental to ensure equal and inclusive health coverage. Talking to the speakers in today's episode made me think about how central relationships are to the successful functioning of health systems and how we must make sure that, in the drive to achieve universal health coverage on a global scale, these on-the-ground, local relationships are not neglected or forgotten. Join me in the final episode of this four-part series covering the Rhodes Healthcare Forum to listen in on my conversations with two final speakers. We'll be discussing transformative tools and patient therapies in the context of universal health coverage.
for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. Special thanks goes to all of today's interviewees, the Rhodes Healthcare Forum Committee, the Rhodes Communications Team, and Kira Allman. This podcast was produced by myself, Christy Calloway-Gale, and the music you heard was Hopeful Journey by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.